Hey, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. This is your co-host, Blair Fraser. And this week, we are partnering with our friends at the Lubrication and Reliability Virtual Summit taking place on September 14th and 15th to interview just a few of the over 50 speakers that are speaking at this great event. On this podcast, we're going to hear a snippet, a small peek inside of the processes from our good friend, Bob Latino, about RCA of a fan motor failure with lubrication-related causes, where he delves into how to break down a seemingly chaotic situation into its manageable components, letting, letting evidence lead the way to the physical, human, and latent organizational root causes. And once we hear from Bob, we're going to dive right in to Danny Shorten, Manning's director at Optimane Limited. And what Danny's going to talk about is assessing the asset population using oil analysis data. Essentially, what Danny is going to challenge us with is we often look at oil analysis from that individual piece of equipment. But what can that tell us about the systems or common assets that we have across our facility? If you are currently taking single oil analysis from a piece of machinery and not looking at the bigger picture, I think Danny's presentation is going to be a lot of value for you. Now, before we get into this podcast, a quick note from our sponsors. Our friends at NanoPrecise Prediction with Precision set out on a very unique approach to automate an end-to-end solution. One of their main benefits is their edge-based monitoring. Their six-in-one sensors has advanced edge analytics that allows for full-time monitoring without full-time connectivity. These sensors can collect data about temperature, vibration, acoustic emission, humidity, true RPM, magnetic flux, and securely transmit it to the cloud platform for detailed analysis. Sensors can detect anomalies at the edge. You start to couple this with automated analysis and diagnosis, automated prediction and prescription, automatic alert and notification, custom APIs for integration, and the support and handling of their CAT level two, three, four analysts and reliability experts. That is when you have a automated end-to-end solution. Each week, we're going to bring you a small snippet called Machine Docker to the Rescue Story. This week, it was a one megawatt boiler feed water pump in a power plant. With the use of the Machine Doctor, the, the plant was able to detect an early journal bearing misalignment and advanced corrective action helped them save approximately $50,000 in downtime. I invite you to check out NanoPrecise. Dot io that is n a o p r e c i s e dot i o to learn more about their products. Now on to the show. Well, good morning, Bob. Good morning, Blair. Welcome back to the Maintenance Disrupted. You are a returning contributor to this to this podcast. It's always a question mark whether I'm going to be asked back or not. So I'm very. <laughs> That's right. I, I think I think it'll always be an open open invitation for. There's a, there's a few people that just have an open invitation, uh, and you and you're definitely one of them, Bob. So, but this time we have you very specifically on to talk about the lubrication and reliability virtual summit, and in particular, the topic that you were talking about. And this might be a surprise to many people, but it's about RCA. Go go figure, eh? <laughs> uh, pretty narrow and pretty deep, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly where I, I I am so wide and about two inches deep. So people <laughs> like you just I, I keep on learning from. So I think that's a that's a that's a um, a great analogy there, Bob. So you're going to be talking about RCA of a fan motor failure with lubrication related causes, and I know from from our side conversations with you and Sonia, it's. It's coming from something. So why don't you explain a little bit about why you're doing this topic before we get into what this topic is is actually about? Yeah, I mean, by, by far, I'm not going to be claiming to be any expert in lubrication practices or reliability at all. That's it, my association and friendship with uh, Sonia has been, has been long. And uh, 
it's sort of like uh, I guess when you when you when you have the Reese's peanut butter cup created, <laughs> where you had the, the chocolate and the peanut butter. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, the, the fields. You know, she's got a deep domain expertise in lubrication and uh, the herbology field, and uh, mine is just with uh, the RCA and and how people think through why any undesirable event occurs. So uh, with that is uh, you know we just joined. The, the two together and uh we started to do uh to building logic diagrams about why on you know, the six major lubrication degradation mechanisms uh, about uh creating troubleshooting flow diagrams for you know how those come to be and uh finding the root causes that lead to uh those uh, undesirable outcomes so uh, we, we collaborated on a a book on this that uh, whenever that comes out, I don't, I don't know, but the uh, it, it was just bringing together the principles of understanding, uh, thinking through cause and effect logic, uh, using evidence to back up what you say on each of those uh, degradation mechanisms. And uh, this particular case is uh, what we used as the wrap up. Uh, I think it was the final chapter. Uh, where you bring all of the parts that we had discussed in the other nine chapters uh, together. So it's the, it's the practical application of everything you just learned. Excellent. Now, is this hypothetical or is this a real life situation that happened? Of this no, it's, 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 a, it's a real life. It's, it's embellished, uh, you know, the names to protect the Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> no, no, no plant really has a failure, right? You're just making it up because... You know, nothing's ever failed before, so you had to make up one, right? But it's not hard to find content. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting. I think that's exactly um, a, a great analogy of the the uh, the peanut butter cup, right? Of of you know putting two pieces together, and just so everyone knows, and I'm sure people have tried this, you can't make it at home for some reason. You can take peanut butter off the shelf, you can take chocolate, push them together, and you still don't get that delicious taste of a of a factory made uh, peanut butter cup there. Um, it has been a, a synergy, uh, you know. Obviously, uh, we, we've known Sonia a long time, but uh, and it's it's even interesting for me because I, I I'm, I'm the critical thinking guy. Uh, I, the undesirable outcome really doesn't matter to me. I, I do this in hospitals. I, I do this on uh, in you know the, thing, the things I really enjoy is where people don't have these types of skills. I go into schools and, and I'm interested in teaching kids. Mm. At the uh, middle school and high school levels of understanding, you know, why kids bully each other, you know, topics like that, or you know, why packages are late for UPS, or uh, we one one project a long time ago, you know, why we do uh, root causes of terrorism with homeland security. But the the, the, the the takeaway here that I want to take is that the the way you think through any of those undesirable outcomes is the same. So it doesn't matter to me if it applies uh, to lubrication failure related failures in that because you're going to keep uh, drilling down and understanding well how how could this have occurred what evidence was here what context was uh, at play and you know inevitably you're going to run down to there's going to be humans involved and uh, you know it's not about the blame because that's not going to get you anywhere it's uh, our, true RCA is all about understanding why good people make bad decisions at the time. <laughs> That's and, if right. and if you don't get un into understanding the reasoning for their decisions and you just choose to cover it up and blame them, then you're just going to be dealing with it again. Right. I, I think that's very interesting of applying that because, you know, I'm just so focused on, you know, quote unquote, our industry and, and you know, reliability, maintenance to see the same framework getting applied outside of that, which is, which is very interesting. And, and one thing, there's two things you mentioned is the first thing is breaking, you know, an, an undesirable outcome or what happened into manageable components. So what does that process look like? How, how do you break something that's very chaotic, probably caused, if you're doing an RCA, assuming it caused some, some pain to someone somewhere, how do you start to break that down? Well, I mean, to just take any case where you have a uh, a process line that that shut down unexpectedly, and you, you know, that, at that point you you don't know exactly what it was. Okay, you, so you get to a scene. It's almost like the police going to a crime scene, and then you, you're dealing with the facts that are there, and you see parts that are spewing all over the place. 
uh, and you you know that for a fact that you have a uh, a bearing that failed in a critical pump, and uh, you know it's not in the pump anymore; <laughs> it's, uh, it's outside. <laughs> and uh, you know that's that's an anomaly. <laughs> that, that's that should right. have to, that should have to be explained. That's a fact that has to be explained. So, you know, if I'm delving back into the facts from the scene, then I'm going to be saying, well, you know, how can that bearing fail? And, uh, you know, that's why, you know, we, we our friend, good friend Shane uh, Turcotte and the rest of the people in the metallurgy industry are so important to this type of craft is that, you know, I, I, I have to be the bearing. And, and you walk backwards and you say, what, what are the way, what happened to me to make me be left in that position? And there's really only four mechanisms that you're using. If you're going backwards in time, almost like a videotape that frames, and, and you're saying, well, how could that bearing fail? Well, there's only four ways. There's, there's only erosion, corrosion, fatigue, and overload. And, and you know, people like Shane, that that's their canvas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they, they read that type of thing, and, and they say, you know, I, I can see from this and through the lab work that it's going to be, uh, how, how can I have overload? And then he's going to go through ductile and he's going to go through brittle. And then you're going to say, well, you know, if it's a brittle, you know, how can I have brittle uh, overload? And then that's, that's where you just keep, you know, once you dig into a fact, you, you become hypothetical to understand how that fact came to be. And then you're using the evidence uh, going forward to say what's true and what's not. But inevitably working that down backwards, you, you are going to come across a human involved and, and it's going to and i rarely use the uh something to be finite but uh, at some point there, there's going to be a human intervention and it's going to be errors of omission or commission uh either we weren't we did something uh we weren't supposed to or we were supposed to do something and we didn't uh. and, and at that point you have to say uh, there, that, that's where uh, and I make a big deal out of this in mind because I'm so attached to the to the safety and the human performance side. But if you, if you look at uh, the put, put in your mind the, the vision of an hourglass mm-hmm. and the at the, uh, the the skinny point in the middle where all the sand's going through, anything above say say that's the decision maker. Okay, everything above that is a consequence of the decision that's observable. Everything beneath that is going to be the reasoning for the decision. So I can't see reasoning. I can see that the physical sciences are everything that's represented by the consequences. And everything, when you're dealing with reasoning beneath that decision, is going to be social sciences. It's going to be, you know, the, the human performance component, the human and organizational learning, and things of that nature. So, you know, really, to me, because it, I, I would consider anything above on the, on the physics side of it to be what, people would call failure analysis as opposed to root cause analysis because that, that's tied to the, the, the mechanical side of why things fail. But root, root cause to me in the, in the context we use, it means that you're getting deeper and you're, you're going to tie the social sciences to it and you're going to get into the human reasoning and say, you know, that, that person uh, feeds their family with that check. They, they, they don't go to work and say, you know, I'm really going to misalign this line today. And I'm going to, you know, have this bad outcome. You know, people don't do that malice with intent unless it's sabotage, which is less than, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the cases. So, you know, a lot of this is that RCA is not stopping and blaming people. It's not that there's one root cause. Failure is not linear. But you got to get past that decision maker and be truly interested in why they felt it was the right thing to do that day. And chances are what you'll find is that anybody else in the same situation is and has been making the same decisions, uh, that this person has likely been making that same decision because they've been taking shortcuts that have worked and getting praised for it. And then on, on any given day, there's something new introduced and all of a sudden the shortcut doesn't work. And now you're the villain and you went from a hero to a zero with the same decision. Right. You know, then you'll be disciplined for, which is, you know, to me, it makes you a hypocrite. But uh, that most people are making those decisions based on the organizational systems that are supposed to be providing them better information. But the reality is, we're not that good at keeping up the organizational system. So, if, you know, in your world, if you're doing, if you're implementing these uh, IoT and these AI technologies, 
and we're not up, updating the procedures and the uh, the policies and the training of that, then I could very well be following a procedure that's in place that's obsolete, and I can cause a failure. Mm-hmm. But is that my fault? Because I, I did everything I was supposed to, but the organizational systems failed me. So RCA, you know, in, in, at least in my context, in my little world, uh, that the, the, the human decision maker is the victim in a lot of cases, mm. as opposed to they're, they're the victims of their deficient systems. They're not the causes of the failure. They're a victim of the bad uh, systems. Exactly. I think that was well put. There were so many nuggets just in that diatribe there, I think. <laughs> and, and, you know, what, what I really resonated with it, you know, when it comes down to the human, um, you know, something they did that they shouldn't have. Now that as a result could have been because of the system, doesn't they could have done exactly what they were supposed to do based on the procedures of the system, but it was wrong. Right. Or um, something they did that they shouldn't have. Right. And I, I think that's a, a really good way of looking at it. And then, you know, I, I love the analogy you put of, of becoming the bearing putting yourself in the bearing shoes and then working yourself backwards. And then a lot of, when I've heard you talk, we've, we've done these podcasts before is you talk about, you know, so you break it down into components and the next thing you do is start making um, facts based on evidence. So you're big on evidence, right? How, how, how does that work? Like, so when you start to say, you know, erosion, corrosion, fatigue, those type of categories, you're starting to work backwards. How do you gain that evidence? Are, do you become like a crime scene investigator at that point? Yeah, I mean, the, the parallel in any investigative occupation, all the steps are the same. I mean, you know, we use PROACT as our act. Everybody's got to have, have an acronym because you need a marketing <laughs> as a unique. <laughs> but I mean, the, when you... When you strip away labels, the the functions of an investigator are the same. You know, you you have to go out and you have to preserve and collect evidence. You have to uh, monitor and be uh, aware of bias and whoever is on the team and leading the team. You have to analyze that data with the eyes of that team uh, using that evidence. Uh, Then, you know, when you're uh, when you've concluded your RCAs, then you have to come up with recommendations to do something. And then uh, the last part is just because you do something doesn't mean it worked, that you have to have to have some feedback loop that says you're tracking that whatever your corrective actions were, they had a positive impact on the bottom line. And, you know, because a lot of people just consider, uh, you know, that, that I, because I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm accredited or, you know, I met some kind of regulatory minimum requirements, checklist RCA, but that you, you don't measure any benefit. I mean, I, you know, okay, I, I got some, uh, I passed some regulatory audit. You know, in the uh, in the healthcare industry, I think there's, well, I don't know how old this number is, but there's about 6,000 hospitals in the U.S. And uh, the commissioning, the accreditation agency is the uh, called the Joint Commission, which gives them, the, the, the authorizes the federal monies to be spent uh, and given to the hospitals. And it's a, it's a fair chunk of their income. But, you know, uh, everybody wants to pass the audit to get their federal money. Well, until COVID, uh, the third leading killer of all Americans in the U.S. was medical error. So uh, everybody was accredited, yet the patient safety death rate, uh, the patient death rate due to medical error was rising. From uh, 1999, it was between... There's a study that came out, the uh, Institute of Medicine. It was uh, 44, 40, yeah, 44 to 98,000 pe- uh, 98, people a year were dying from medical error. Well, that number through the years was going up to, depending on which study you read, was between three and 400,000 a year. So, I mean, 1,000 people a day die from medical error, and uh, everybody's accredited. So that tells me that there's a gap <laughs> between... <laughs> You know, be, 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 you know, passing your uh, accreditation and uh, actually uh, the benefit you receive from it. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a lot for uh, checklist RCA as, uh, as saying that we met some minimum requirements. Right. Uh, it should be measured by the benefit you got from it. Right. And that was going to be my my question is what how do you measure success of an RCA? How do you measure that benefit as the outcome? Of that RCA, how do how do you know that you've you've 
done what you believe you could from that RCA? I mean, the, the easy answer is that it's, uh, it's represented by the lack of it not happening again. But the, the problems with when you're, uh, when it's what you do RCA on that's important. So everybody who does, has an RCA effort of any kind has some type of triggers that are set that set when they will do an RCA. And that trigger it usually is very, it's too late because it's a high consequence. We, we killed somebody, we maimed somebody, we, uh, we lost a million dollars in equipment, we ticked off a big customer who left. You know, those are probably two, that's reactive use of RCA to the max. So, uh, and, and it's hard to say that if I had a failure that happens once every 10 years, to your point about demonstrating ROI, realistically it would take me 10 years to determine right, that exactly yeah right well that's why I, my my focus my work is, is on the chronic failures that don't rise to that trigger but these are the things that just piss everybody off that works on the front line because it's the small things that happen over and over and over again that they get really good at fixing that it, it takes them less time to fix it than it does to put it in the cmms so you don't even know that it's there but when you multiply that times how many times they have a year, they happen in a year, then it, it's big time money. Uh, and those are easy to demonstrate ROI because those are built into the budget. They're under general, there's some slush fund general. They get a cost of living increase because we've accepted those as a cost of doing business. So uh, say, just take something easy like conveyor rollers. Uh, and, you know, you get very simple fix, low, low cost. Uh, to do that and it's uh you, you measure how many times that those are happening over a year and then you take you do an rca and, and it's not a difficult rca for those it doesn't take a lot of time mm -hmm. uh, and you make those go away and then all of a sudden where you might have had a million dollar a year problem the next year you know, maybe it goes down to four hundred thousand dollars that that's measurable because you already allocated the money aside to do that and uh in my so I can relate this to everybody in my healthcare book. Everybody can relate going to the emergency room, okay? And when they they draw blood on you, and oftentimes they have to draw the blood again because something happened. Either it uh, they weren't able to get it out of you know they, they had to poke you several times to get it out, or they got the sample out and it has to go through several steps where it goes to the you know out of the emergency mm -hmm. room. Deliver to the lab. The lab has to process it. You come back with your results. Well, a lot of things can go wrong in that cycle, and uh, they call it uh, blood redraws. But you know, we did this analysis. We call it an opportunity analysis on a uh, average size hospital in the U.S. Uh, certified beds. I think it's about 250 bed hospital is average. Well, we found out that the average cost to do a uh, redraw is you know uh, and this takes into account the, uh, the the nurses time the tech's time the real estate that you have to uh, hold in the uh, emergency room because you have you have to hold it somebody an extra hour and you got to pay for it then you just lost that hour that's a lost downtime hour or terms but the average the average cost of a redraw was three hundred dollars okay doesn't seem like a lot nobody really cares cost of doing business no one's going to question it on its individual occurrence. How many times a year do you think that happened in this hospital? 10,000. So that's three, that's $3 million that's hidden in plain sight that absolutely nobody questions. And that's that's what I like to highlight in, in, in the books and papers and you know, things like that that we can all relate to. Uh, but, you know, that that's uh, when people say, you know, we're understaffed, this and that, and I'm sitting there going, well, so that's the least of your problems. <laughs> you got three million people, three million dollars just that's sitting here on the table and nobody seems to care. So, uh, you know, that, that, that would provide a lot of staffing. But it, it, they're efficiency issues. Right. And I think that's ROI hiding in plain sight. That's what I just wrote down there. And I think that's. Yeah. That's fantastic because, and I, I was thinking this way, this is my, my head was that is, you know, you, you do an RCA on, you know, we, we obviously criticality, right. Um, yeah. But you're right. Is those large catastrophic failures ideally don't happen 
very often. As you pointed out, that 10 years, you have to wait for another 10 years to see if you actually removed, eliminated the, the issue that was causing that. Right. That's a 10 year. Well, even look at that from a cash flow standpoint and saying, because the accountants, if you have a hit once every 10 years, they're, they're going to, you know, if that's a million dollar hit, they're going to amortize that over 10 or 20 years. Right. Uh, so that you saw from the blow every year. These other ones, you're, you're paying out of pocket. Uh, I mean, they're built into your budget. Right. That's you're, fantastic. You're, paying, you're paying cash for that. So going back to this, this, um, this fan motor, which, which, you know, you're using that um, real example with, with scrubbing the, the, the company names and things like that. Um, so you're going to walk through that entire process. Um, or I guess you're going to, in this presentation, you're going to walk, you're going to walk through as much as you can with the time allotted, you know, the RCA of a, of a fan motor to get to that outcome of, of, of what you're going to do to, not or prevent that from happening again is that the intent of that presentation yeah and, and obviously the link to this particular conference is going to be that it's going to be a lubrication related failure so it, it will it will look at those six lubrication degradation mechanisms it will say what evidence comes back and says that it's it's this particular mechanism that was represented uh actually i forget which one it is uh, but you know, say, say it was contamination, and then you're going to go keep drilling down as to say, you know, how could we have had the lubricant be contaminated? And, and you know, you're going to explore all the different uh, sources of that, and uh, and eventually, like I said, you're you're going to go through the, the the root systems for us. It's going to be the the physical roots, the human roots, which is are the decisions, and then the latent roots are the ones that really matter. They're they're the ones that are the systemic stuff. Uh, those are deficient organizational systems that uh, provided people less than adequate information to, to make the right decisions. Right. Great. And and at the end of this presentation, we do get to see what the final outcome of that RCA was. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Well, I think this is, and obviously being a lubrication related conference, I think, uh, you know, the, the topic is, is spot on for, um, and, and you look at it, why is lubrication so important? And, you know, we know a majority of, um, downtime failures is, is lubrication related right? for specifically for mechanical rotating equipment. Right. So, uh, I think this is going to be a, a, a varying, a very interesting, and I definitely piqued my interest because I'm by no means a lubrication expert as well, trying to learn off of Sonia. And combining your expertise on the RCA process and, and hers with her in-depth knowledge of the um, failure mechanisms is, is going to be a, a beautiful peanut butter cup put together there for us. <laughs> Maybe we should get Reese's to sponsor some of this conference. That's right. We're reaching out right after this. <laughs> hey, Reese's, do you want to sponsor a lubrications? <laughs> uh, well, I do appreciate the time. Always a pleasure, Bob. Look forward to this presentation happening on uh, September and four, September 14th and 15th of, of this year's Lubrication and Reliability Virtual Summit. Um, I do believe we have passed the early bird time. So if uh, our listeners here have snoozed, too bad for you. Uh, there might be some other incentives. I know um, they're running some contests to, to give away some tickets and things like that. Again, I, I do believe the, the cost is, is very low to attend. Uh, so listeners, if you want to listen to uh, Bob's RCA talk, uh, and of course, um, many other ones, I uh, encourage you to go to maintenancedisrupted.com. Right on our homepage is a link to the event. Please go through that link and it helps support the show. So thank you once again, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Blair, and uh, look forward to a great show. Well, I hope you enjoyed that small, shorter interview with our good friend, Bob Latino. Now let's get over to Danny, and Danny's going to talk about a system approach to oil analysis. Danny, pleasure to have you on the show today. Hi there. Hi there. Uh, Danny, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, as I say, we've got some sunshine, which is a good uh, a good omen, I think, going forward. It is a good omen, absolutely. <laughs> so the, the reason we have you on the podcast today is in specific to the Lubrication and Reliability Virtual Summit coming up. And you have a a very interesting abstract that I'm, I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about, assessing the asset population using oil analysis data. And so before we get into that, do you mind giving the listeners a, a bit 
of a, a short overview of yourself and and your company. Yeah, I I run a business in the UK called Optimain Limited. Um, I've uh, been running it for about five years. Uh, and my reason for existing is to try and get people to do what they always say they're going to do, but actually do it as opposed to talk about it. So what I mean by that is um, get the basics right, get the training in there, keep things clean and try and derive a reliable service from basically doing getting the basics right. And, and the tools we bring for, to that could be oil analysis, it could be vibration, it could be all sorts of things. My, my background's in oil, oil analysis. Um, so I've seen it from the ground up and from the top down. So where, I, where I'm at really is trying to put, put it at policy level through strategy into implementation with a, a vision from the boardroom on the shop floor. Uh, because both, very often the, there is misalignment and there's friction, which is a word I use a lot, between the various departments within organisations because they've both got slightly different needs. You know, we, we hear very often about the purchasing department needing to keep costs down. So they, they buy spares which are to specification but the engineering staff realize they're ending up to replacing them more often than they need to so the business suffers <coughs> because there's internal friction within the organization right I like, but, I like, but, sorry Danny, go ahead no i was just going to just to go to finish to say that um very often the questions that i'm i'm i go in to talk to people about are not the questions we end up answering when we work together so I bring 40 years worth of experience of lubrication and condition monitoring. Uh, and I'm interested to find out why companies don't always achieve what they set out to achieve. And very often it's it's simply taking someone from outside to get to have a perspective. Um, so if anybody tracks over to my website, a lot, a lot of the work I've set out to do is in the marine and associated fleets because I did 15 years with Lloyd's Register as a surveyor and a specialist looking at marine maintenance optimization. So we end up going in and having a conversation, but we actually end up drilling down somewhere where we didn't expect to and, and revealing a piece of value which is there to be mined. Um, and that that's the way I've tended to work. And so I don't advertise particularly, but we do get sort of referred quite often just to shed new light into the dark and dusty corners of the lube room or the factory to find out where where we can get a little bit more bang for the buck. And that's really what, what the the centre of my presentation is, is how can we get more out of what we're already doing? Right. In in, in your abstract for this presentation, you talk about, um, you know, the ideas we look at, you know, in particular, uh, oil analysis or lubrication in general from a, a specific asset in, in yeah. often that specific point in time in the history of it. And and what I think you're encouraging people to do is look at it from, you know, a whole operations or, or, or plant view versus that single asset. So can you explain a little more about that? Um, yeah, I mean, cl clearly the, the presentation goes into more detail, but from a heads, heads up sort of perspective, the process tends to be we send someone to a machine to acquire an oil sample. That sample finds its way often through nefarious means to a laboratory where they do some tests. Somebody who's never been on the plant gives it an assessment and possibly some engineering comments. That report comes back. It doesn't go back to the person who took the sample. It goes back into an office. And the first thing they'll do is look to see if there's any major issues using the, the RAG reporting system, so red, amber, green. If it's green, it'll get filed. If it's amber, they've got time. They might read it. If it's red, they'll definitely read it, but they might not do anything more than that. And, you know, that might create a work order. It might not, depending on the nature of the thing. But effectively, the job is considered closed once that report is received. The only other thing that may happen is there may be some trend analysis. So we're looking over a period of the last four or five samples, which could be anything up to 18 months worth of data. But we don't do anything more with that. And what, I, what I'm proposing is to make better use of the way we control the data. To actually look at, well, if you've got 25 pumps on there, how do they perform as, an, as a population? Are we constantly doing the same things to these assets? Or are certain assets behaving better than others? Is one plant working better than another plant with similar assets, for instance? Uh, if we're making purchasing decisions, does the maintainability of a particular asset reveal itself in the lubrication analysis compared to one and different type of analysis? So really getting to take a much higher perspective and look at the population 
as a, as an asset as opposed to the machine as the asset. Right, and it very and it as you're talking, Danny, it just makes so much sense, right? Well, I think I think it does, and the 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 thing we're not doing is actually just putting the tools in place when we record each sample to allow us to slice and dice the data from a higher perspective because of the way we, we record the data. Um, but I, I know if I was a manager, I want to know that my loop techs are being supported and they're, they're, they're actually able to do the job. Because we, we get four or five different headline failure modes with lubrication. It's, it's either the dirty environment, the dirt inside, or the way we operate the plant. Or finally, the lack of any, any input whatsoever, which is uh, the housekeeping issue. And if we've got an asset range of, let's say we've got 50 pumps or 50 gearboxes over a number of sites, they're all going to have a headline failure mode which work in that way. So by comparing those oil analyses, we can, tend, we can see whether certain sites under certain conditions are experiencing issues. And then we can drill into why that's the case. And that, this is really about resolving root cause issues, about stopping problems happening in the first place. We want to... I don't want to fix breakdowns. I just I don't want breakdowns, and the way we avoid breakdowns is by eliminating causes of failure. And yet we don't look at the causes of failure. We want to see precursors of failure that we can then react to. Right, that's a great. So way we're not it. actually going far, far up, far up the tree enough to stop them. We don't want failures. Period. That 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 that's that's the goal. Um, and an illustration of that might be that. You might apply oil analysis to a plant and it might fail to find a failure. So somebody will then throw the oil analysis and say, it doesn't work, it didn't find my failure. But if you look at the asset as a population, you're looking at raising the reliability of the whole population. You will get spikes, you will get outliers, this is the nature of the game, but every outlier is an opportunity to eliminate an unknown risk. Right, and I think, you know, when it, when it comes back, and I'll go back to my early RCM training is is the fundamental rcm system is based on looking not at an individual component or asset but looking at the system at the system yes. level yeah. and i think that's what you're is saying is looking at and i, I think if i if i understand this correctly and in with your background you know you you have a very uh expertise on oil but also you mentioned vibration and things like that for for a number of decades that same yeah. analogy could be applied for any it, it, I, I, it's agnostic as a process. It has it has no technique limitations. You can use it for pressures, temperatures, or working variables as much as you can for vibration, acoustic emission, thermal imaging, whatever. What you're trying to say is, you know, is the data that we're finding when it goes slightly wrong, or where we get outliers, are we capturing the reason why that outlier was uh, was present? And then by grouping the reasons for those outliers, we can then start comparing them. In, in whatever ways we feel necessary to run the business better. And this, this plays into uh, 55,000, it plays into 55.1, the ICML uh, guide, which shows us really, you know, we need to make better decisions. And we're gathering data like it's going out of fashion at the moment. We don't necessarily know what to do with it. And I think it's how we gather the data is really the crux of, of my presentation as to what we need to do when the data goes in to ensure we can actually ask the and, right questions of it at some later date. Right. And you actually mentioned that. I wanted to touch on that a point is saying one of the issues or the fundamental issues of why we're not doing this is the way we're collecting or slicing and dicing that that information. Right. Mm. Because um, we're all interested in the failure that may or may not be about to occur on that one machine. We're not necessarily interested about excursions, which might be actually happening over 10 machines and shows a, a, a different type of sort of failure mode that we need to look at. Could be just bad housekeeping or cleanliness or poor filtration. Mm -hmm. you know, but we're very much more interested in and at each specific because the oil analysis community have built their uh, deliverable based on an oil analysis report at the machine level and that's there's nothing wrong with that i completely support that but there is a way of looking at it from a higher perspective so how do gearboxes compare to hydraulic oils how do uh, engines um, compare to um, compressors 
how does diesel engines compare to petrol engines or, or petroleum engines or, or how does diesel engine A compare to diesel engine B? You know, I mean, you go wherever you want to go depends on the nature of your business and the, and the, and the sort of questions you really want to ask of your plant. Because there's one question I think is universal, and that is, do you want to be woken up at three o'clock in the morning because something's gone wrong? I don't know anybody who would actually answer yes to that question. So we spend a lot of money and time trying to avoid failures, but the risk-reward is, is not necessarily targeted particularly well. And to, one example of that would be that we, we pat this engineer on the head and give him a real cheer when the plant gets working again. We don't give him the same kudos if the plant never fails in the first place. So everything is driven towards failure uh, rectification and not actually driving reliability. Uh, and yet, on the safety front, we drive towards safety. We don't wait for accidents to happen before we fix safety. We try and precursor accidents in order for them never to happen. And, and, and I would argue that any reliability issue is an issue which could lead to a safety issue. So actually, they should be viewed under a similar context. And I would argue that, I mean, I don't know what it's like in the, in the US, but in the, in the UK, if you go into someone's reception room, you'll show their quality management policy and their safety management policy will be side by side. There's no maintenance policy on the wall. It's buried a bit in safety, a bit in quality. But actually, if you, cause if you see maintenance policy at that level, within the organization, which is, I think, what I said, I said 55,000 is one of the things that's trying to achieve, is to put it up there, then everything falls through. It's an absolute line of sight from the policy through the strategy to the, to the shop floor. And what I'm trying to say within my presentation, in a slightly round-the-back-door way, is if you, get the, if you get the data in that you provide at the shop floor right, you can run the asset management from the top down easily because you've got the ability to slice and dice that data and ask the sort of questions which you want to have answered at management level, not the, sh the questions you need answering at shop floor level. You need both. And that also plays into the opportunity for financing new technology. And what I mean by that is... If your senior management team are getting value out of that data, you're going to have to censorise everything because they want that. And if it doesn't give them good value or opportunity to improve the business for the shareholder, then there's no investment opportunity. It's just a guy with a good idea. So I, I'm trying to see the data within oil analysis as a tool for reliability engineers as well, but predominantly for people who are running those businesses. Mm. So they've got and, more intelligence to use. And that's what you were talking about, that line of sight. And early on, when you're doing your, your brief introduction, you were talking about removing that friction from the shop floor up to up to the boardrooms. Yeah. And I, I I understand that better now because the you know, when you look at individual line owners, business unit owners, executives, there's no line item for a specific equipment. Mm on their on their metrics right it's always the systems you know from that level right so when you start to zoom out that data then it makes more a lot more sense to those those people that aren't looking at equipment they're looking well at. i think there's a lot of really use really interest, interesting information buried in the data but if we only look at it in one way we'll never see what's it's sitting around it so that's it and I, what my presentation is going to do is basically just sprinkle a few ideas on how companies can devise that relationship with their oil analysis provider so that the right data fields are being captured at the point of um, analysis. Right. So it's a different way of, of putting this data into context, slicing it and visualizing this data. So it doesn't, it, it, is there, I guess there's always going to be areas of improvement for the, the, the collect, like the oil collection to make sure you take clean samples and things like that. But really what you're focusing on is what you're doing with that data once you receive that data. Is that true? Well, it, it, the, 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 the simple answer is fault coding, putting putting fault codes around the, 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 the comments that are put in the bottom of the box. So if you've got, for instance, I don't know, a high water content, you, the, the, the reporter will tell you there's high water content. So that will trigger a, a, a RAG report to be amber or green or red, dependent upon the nature of that. So somewhere in the data, it needs to be red equals high water which we know both pieces of data already exist. So it's just making those links. So I can go, right, how many hydraulic oils failed on that plant due to high water content and where were they? 
Then I can look at a map, I can see where they are, and there may well be an issue because the roof leaks in that part of the factory, but nobody's right. noticed. So it's, it's just making a slight upgrade in terms of how you actually link the reporting to the way it's actually, um, sorry, the, the data inputs to the way it's reported. So you're kind of putting a little feedback loop on before before the report leaves the provider. If it's high iron, for instance, or, or iron, nickel, chrome, some of these alloying elements, it's a bearing failure or it's potentially bearing material. We'll give it a red report. Why was that red report? Because the bearing looks like it's failing. Question, how many systems have I got with bearing failures? And where are they? And then I can go, well, how many have I got with bearing failures with water in? And where are they? Are they actually clusters or are they all over the place? If they're clusters, why are they clustered? Because that means there's some kind of commonality which is affecting the performance of those assets. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now I'm starting to get excited here because I can really see, we're actually seeing things which were on hitherto invisible to us because we were just we just saw one system with a bit of water in it and we, I'll change that next week. Now that's 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 a hint from the system that there, there are bigger fish to fry as we say over in the UK. You know, that's right. <laughs> I think yeah, and what a great analogy of the you know the water in the bearings or analogy like that, right? And because the root cause is not a failed bearing, the root cause is actually the roof leaking, as you mentioned, like there's water ingress yeah. getting in somewhere. But if you don't take a and step out and, and take a view mm -hmm. at a higher level, you're not going to see that. It's not going to no. be all this, all these bearings in this one area. But the, 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 the analogy which the quality guys will get is, is non-conformances and non-compliances because they, they, ha they have to be reported. They have to be, uh, worked upon and they have to be closed out now what 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 this is tr is trying to suggest to people use that similar methodology in your oil analysis if you get anything which is a non-compliance or a non-conformity which is a rag report uh, red number just log why and then at some late uh, at an annual or quarterly or monthly basis you need to assess those and put them statistically out there in some way that you can actually report them back. Because that's what you would do if you were auditing someone for a quality management scheme. You would actually go in and you firstly, they do an internal audit to make sure they're not going to fall over when the external auditor comes in. But if the external auditor comes in and finds something, he'll give you so many months to rectify it. And then you'll have to prove that you've rectified it because it's systemic. That's what they're looking for. Systemic issues, not local issues. Everybody falls over. We'll, somebody will write the wrong name in. It, it happens. But what, what quality is about is having a system which, which is consistent and produces the same rubbish you put in or put the same rubbish out or the same good stuff stuff in you get the right what you don't want is, is is inconsistencies in that data flow because then you're not in control of it and and the other the other analogy you could use is if, if any i know you guys are into your your pistols and shooting there if you're looking at on a shooting range you get a there's two things there's, there's getting the grouping together and then there's actually getting them into the center of the target and you can't get them into the center of the target until you bring the groups together which is getting those outliers into the group and then moving the group to the target at the moment we're not doing either we're looking at each bullet hole in the map and going mm. well that's and, and they're not being looked at as a, as a population um and there are many analogies i'm sure we could use to, to which which are very similar but i i suspect as, as they used to say here that our noses are too close to the grindstone to actually see what we're right. trying to work on that's exactly we it. We need to bit spend bit. some time. And that analogy you gave, just asking why, yeah, right, and then collecting that data. I think is is something so it's it's a simple concept, uh, but something we just we just typically don't do, right? And I think most people are now matured to start doing oil analysis, at least of the critical assets, but still looking at that view. If you just ask why, you might yeah. start to find some some bigger. But if you look at, I think it's ISO seventeen oh two five. I might be wrong on that. It might not be that one. But well, there's a the general condition monitoring standard. Uh, that's the wrong wrong number. I will f find the right number. But there's a there's a lovely flow chart, and it's it's a cycle. Okay. At every stage, you you actually do some kind of root cause analysis. So if it, if it's fine, you just start and take the sample. If it's not, you do you go through another loop until you find the answer. Then you go and take the sample again. So there's there's it's a plan do check act cycle, as opposed to a you know a linear cycle with a beginning and an end. And that, that could be another analogy we could use. That We take the sample, we get the report, it's a straight line. What, what we should we need is a circle that we're continually improving at every page. And if you've got 
a million circles continually improving and you can look at them as a, a whole and, and anyway we're going over old ground but you, you see what i'm right. saying here we're getting more value but we're not actually doing any more work we're just getting more out of it which i love yeah, that yeah. i i think that's a great way to explain we're, we're getting more value of the existing work we're doing that's yeah. exactly what you're trying to to say about yeah. looking at the asset population versus a single uh a single asset. Now, I'm assuming this is based on experience, based on results you've you've done working with customers, working with clients to get that. Yeah. Are, are you able to during this presentation, you know, use that water and the bearing analogy, share some examples of? of uh, well, I, I have pre-recorded mine, so I won't be doing any further edits to that. But it, that we do talk about it in that sort of context, um, using um, without naming anybody, using my experience and time out there to. To say why I think this is important. I mean, I'm I'm not evangelical about this. That people can make their own decisions, but um, it just makes sense. It really does. I mean, we spend a lot of money. Not only do we spend a lot of money doing oil analysis, we spend a lot of money flying bottles all over the world. Most of which, are, somebody's mm -hmm. going to say, there's nothing wrong with the system. So there's a question there, maybe to answer. But there's a lot of effort put into it, and there's, there's so much we can do more without really putting any more effort in. Just by just by being a bit more thoughtful about what we actually want to do with this data at the end of the day, and if you look at some of these oil houses we've been testing for the last ten or twenty years, that you can imagine there's gold in that data, and we're not mining any of it. We are really not. We're not looking at it uh, in anywhere near the, the level of uh, you know, scrutiny that we could do. And we, we certainly, I don't know. I, 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 it pains me that this 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 goal could be lost if we don't just ask the right questions of it. Um, when I challenge some of the labs, the problem is they don't attach some of these fault codes because the databases have not been set up for to, to do that. Um, so what I've had to do is literally pull an extract, you know, a big three D data map, and then add some new, and then go and do look do audit text strings automatically to pull out key numbers, in order to then do the audit trail that way. And it's messy. Mm -hmm. It's doable, but it's messy. Whereas you could just do it on the way in. It wouldn't cost anything because the system would automatically mark water red that's, and, and give, it, right. give it a fault Sorry. code. Excellent. Well, this is fantastic, Danny. I really look forward to attending your um, presentation. Um, and I think there's going to be a number of questions after this because um, mm. I think people are going to start. It, it's the fact that they're already doing it. It's just trying to achieve more value from the work you're being done. Whenever you ask yeah. someone to keep doing what you're doing, but look a little differently and get more value, uh, that's mm. that's what's going to drive a lot of interest. So uh, thank you very much for your time, Danny, and a quick overview no. of your presentation. That's absolutely fine. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Well, listeners, I hope you uh, enjoyed the interviews with Bob and Danny. And just a reminder, as you get back into the swing of things coming the end of the summer. The Lubrication and Reliability Virtual Summit is taking place on September 14th and 15th. There are still tickets available. It is completely virtual. Uh, there's a lot of activities happening not only on the 14th and 15th, but there is a series of events leading up to the event as well. I encourage you, if you are interested, go to maintenancedisrupted.com. Right on our front page, you will see an affiliate link for the conference. By clicking that link, you help support the show, and we greatly appreciate that. Thank you, and have a great day.